Hello. Welcome to EV Chat, the exciting new podcast and place to be. We get to e-meet and greet industry players and decision makers. We'll be asking and discussing some tough questions from drivers on the street to top CEOs from major EV organizations, entrepreneurs, legislators from all over the globe. Stick around. This is a different kind of show. Let's rock it. Hello and welcome back to EV Chat. We are still in the ABCs of EVs, and today we are going to welcome back our resident scientist, Dr. Abbas Gudazi. I'm going to call him Doc. Doc is the chief scientist at Ideanomics and the CEO of US Hybrid. He's an award-winning scientist who's got a big resume and knows everything about electric vehicles. We're glad to have him. He'll be popping in from time to time, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss out on a bit of his wisdom. Welcome back, Doc. Today, we're going to be talking about batteries, you know, those things that power the electric vehicles. You know, when I started my career in electric vehicles in the mid-90s, there were lead-acid batteries, and there was a big concern of the hydrogen that was created when you charged. We've come a long way since then. Batteries 101. Now, this can get really complicated because batteries and battery energy storage and EV to G. Give us an overview of the parts and terms of EV batteries, Doc. First of all, EV battery, the number one critical item for EV battery, it must handle a wide temperature range because it could be left out in the sun. It could have a reflected heat coming from the asphalt or concrete or whatever. At the same time, it has to work under freeze. That is one of the major factors. You don't need that kind of things, even on your iPhone, because iPhone is usually near you. If you leave it out there in the sun, probably could get damaged. It was not meant to do that. Number two element for EV is the fact that it can handle all the vehicle shocks, all this shock and vibration that vehicle has. That's number two. Number three is that it has to have both energy density, that means per pound, I should have good energy, and power density. So when I try to accelerate, I don't damage the battery by overheating it. And then I should have cooling with it. That's why the batteries for passenger vehicle, basically one cathode, one anode, and a separator or electrolyte. So far, that electrolyte, is liquid, either encapsulated in some polymer or actually liquid, just like a lead-acid battery, okay? Yes, we're talking about solid-state batteries. It means that that separator is solid-state, but let's not confuse the discussion. So if I need to have a high-power battery, then I got to make the electrode a little bit thicker because I need all the power to come through. If they're too thin, then they get overheated. As a result, it becomes heavier. For EV battery, I should meet both the energy demand and the power demand. What would be the most common dock we would see out there? I'm hearing a lot about lithium ion. Are there any new advances that we should be looking for in what types of battery? There has been some 
growth in that segment, but because the demand of EV has been really very rapid, most of the improvement has been on the manufacturing process and on the cost reduction. Really, we have not had any necessarily high capital money to put in pure science. The solid state battery is something that a lot of companies are spending billions on because it promises high energy. The lithium metal batteries offer that, but then you have to come back and compensate with the safety. Bottom line, you have two base technology that is most commonly used today. They're both lithium. One is NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt. And guess what? What percentage nickel, what percentage manganese, what percentage cobalt, that dictates if your battery is an energy battery or power battery or so on so And the life of it. The next one is LFP, which is iron phosphate. It's a safer battery, but doesn't have as much energy. For example, Tesla uses that technology for the China market, but it uses NMC for US because US consumer wants the power and range together. That is the two common technology used, and they are very much in common. It's just the chemical composition in a cathode and anode. They're both lithium ion. Why do we say ion? Because the lithium itself is unstable. That's why sometimes you hear solid metal lithium, but we don't use solid metal lithium. We use lithium ion to provide that protection against fire and so on. So also it extends how many times you can charge and discharge. So talk about recycling. Can these batteries be recycled or once they're done, they're done? The batteries can be 100% recycled, technically. Commercially, because people recycle elements because it has value. So the question becomes, do you recycle because of the regulation and law because you don't want to dump it in the road? Or do you recycle because you actually get money out of it? It is a good question because many people don't understand that. When we say an EV battery is dead, what does it mean? It means my range reduced by 20%. That means if I used to go 100 miles, now I can go 80 miles. You can take that battery and put it in the second use. So you have the battery, primary use, have a reuse, and then have a recycle. But recycle today does not offer economics. In other words, if I put a recycle plan today, you have to pay me to recycle your battery. The material inside the battery itself as a commodity doesn't do that. Now, as we go to more and more automation and understand this better, then we may be able to recover a lot of that element, all right, and separate them. But today, Technically, it's 100% recyclable. Financially and commercial feasibility is a different story. Europe demands 100% recyclability. That means the EV supplier has to manage that battery because you cannot throw it out in waste. You cannot. So therefore, that cost is already built into the vehicle. In U.S., we are a little bit falling behind, but it is 100% recyclable technically. So I want to talk real quick about the holy grail. I consider myself a little bit of a DC geek in that I love solar, I love battery energy storage, and I love electric cars. And I notice that people that have solar on their rooftops at home typically drive an electric car. 
I would love to see aggregation of an electric vehicle, which is a DC battery pack, a battery energy storage, which is a DC battery pack, and a DC solar system. How do you see DC aggregation dock with solar, electric cars, and battery energy storage? This is a very, very good question and wish list, which we do in a larger scale commercial PV system. However, for residential, remember, I am on grid. I'm not off grid. That means I'm using the utility as a buffer. That's why we are using the 60 hertz AC as the interface. The station, believe it or not, it's got a DC distribution. It doesn't have AC distribution. So that's why, for example, the Tesla and the Solar City, they had the battery and so on. So, but for the larger scale, you can go from DC to DC directly. You don't have to go to AC. But for my home being grid, if I am in a cloudy day, that's why the grid is there to back me up. That's why we go from DC to AC, from my solar to the grid, and then from the grid back to charger because a standard is the same. So therefore, when I want to charge from the solar versus when I want to charge from the grid, I don't have to go and throw a switch. That is the reason why, because of the convenience. Because remember, a lot of people, it takes them a while to get used to plugging the vehicle in. And if you add another layer of a storage of the battery, then it's additional cost. And one more step that we are demanding from our users. But yes, you are absolutely right. If you go DC, DC, it's more efficient. How much? Probably 5%, 6%. And now a word from our sponsor. EV Chat is powered by 365 Pronto, the world's first platform that links owners of cleantech assets with a nationwide network of local and on-demand technicians. As we all watch the news about potentially historic investments in solar energy and electric vehicle infrastructure, we hear a lot about how manufacturing and installation will drive scores of new jobs. However, we haven't talked about how these items will be serviced and repaired. That's where 365 Pronto comes in. Its unique matching technology has helped owners of electric vehicle charging stations, solar voltage systems, and related battery storage and IoT devices access a local, on-demand, and certified operations and maintenance network. This is how it works. Every work order, asset owner, and local service provider has unique sets of DNA, including service radius, certifications, insurance, and years of experience and more. The platform offers an alternative to outdated O&M service contracts through an efficient pay-as-you-go model. There are no contracts, bidding, or surprises, and it takes about 10 minutes to register. What are you waiting for? Learn more at 365pronto.com. Now let's get back to rocking. Where are we with V2G, Doc? Implementation of V2G. The idea was because of the issue of security, energy security, okay, is that we have all of this battery sitting in a vehicle. I can use that battery to take the excess charge. That's what the discussion was about having a lower rate if you charge at this time. But at the same time, if grid needs power, because it happens to be a very hot day, all the air conditioners are on, 
and they are getting close to the peak load, that means the grid is very risky, then I could feed that power back to grid. That's where vehicle to grid comes from. But the bottleneck for that is not a technology. The bottleneck for that is who's going to control that. Because it is the grid that has to tell me what to do. For example, in Sacramento, as one program I know is, a SMUD actually give you money if you allow them to control your water heater or if you allow them to control your air condition. They shut it off five minutes, 10 minutes interval so you don't feel it as much. But that's how they do It's called power demand management. Okay, peak demand management. So that's why having this vehicle to grid could be used for that purpose. Commercially, it is very risky proposition. Why? I am giving the control of my vehicle to grid to discharge my battery, but what if I need a vehicle immediately? On the other hand, if I am in control, I don't know how much power the grid needs. So that control is the one that we are still working on to see if that is feasible or not. Now, if I have a large installation commercial, when I'm talking about 20 vehicle, 50 vehicle, 100 vehicle, then it's worth to do something collectively, holistically. But when you have fragmented people who live in addresses you don't know, from overall planning, it makes it a little bit more difficult because we do need the grid to be a stable. If the grid is too weak, then we'll have blackout. So the vehicles who is pulling power from the grid could use that power to power the grid. We do this for Air Force. Air Force has a special vehicles. We do that for them. So they don't have to carry a generator with them. You see that? But for you and I, who are driving our electric vehicles, and I know I'm plugged in, I'm, I'm depending on that vehicle tomorrow to do my job. And if somebody else discharges that, then I have to keep track of my iPhone or somebody to tell me what to do. That's another thing. The third thing that people don't realize is that each battery has a certain life. Every time you charge, discharge the battery, it costs you X amount of dollars, X amount of cents. I did the calculation. For every kilowatt hour you use in a battery in and out is about two cents. Just for the life of the battery, because that battery after 5,000 cycle is no good. You have to replace it. If you don't replace it, you paid for it when you bought the vehicle. So those are the kind of things, two items for that. Number one is the overall system. Number two is economics of it. Economics. I remember back in the day, you mentioned air conditioning units. And what would happen is they would put that AC unit on a special circuit and you would get cheaper electricity if you allowed the utility to turn it off, basically. What if we were to have similar with your electric car where you would buy electricity at a cheaper rate if you could allow the utility to curtail or use a little bit of that energy. You pointed that out. It's like this is on its dedicated circuit and I'm paying half what I should be because I'm allowing my car to be a battery. Maybe in the future, do you see? Absolutely, because the consumers are becoming more sophisticated. The consumer perception of fear is changing substantially. From a perception of fear, we are becoming heroes. From perception of fears, we are becoming early adapters. So this is all perception 
of do we consider this to be an added value to increase the number of vehicles to support the whole community versus me? Do I understand that for that penalty, it means it's possible that I could go to my vehicle, I don't have 100% of the range. I only have 80% of the range. So now, does it mean I'm going to buy a vehicle that's 120% of range? That's the thing that we have to think about. For example, look at Tesla. Tesla puts so much batteries on a vehicle that majority of users don't use all of it. They only use 10%, 15% of it, and half of that is used to carry the battery. Personally, I believe if you tell the consumer you do that and you can get the lower electricity rate, but the vehicle is going to cost a little bit more or the life is going to reduce a little bit, then it becomes a little bit of a trade, financial trade or trade-off between operational cost versus capital cost. This is a tricky question, and I want to make it very clear. Today, electric vehicle is not a technology challenge. It's not a manufacturing challenge. It's all about economics. We want people to be clean and green, but we cannot penalize them financially. It has to be financially making sense for a taxi driver to drive electric. It should be financially making sense for a delivery man, delivery woman, to drive an electric vehicle to deliver pizza or whatever it is. So. That's why technically it's feasible, but is the added value versus cost is paying off or not? Interesting. You talk about economics. As an ambassador for our industry, I try and demyth, if you like, how we tend to overcomplicate simplicity. For example, to put in a level two charger at your house. It really is no different to putting in a 40 amp, 240 volt circuit for an electric dryer. But when you mention, I'm going to have an electric car, it scares people. It really does. It scares people. And the installation of commercial installations also, we need to bring the cost down. We have to bring the cost down. It's way too expensive right now to put in four level two chargers or a DC fast charger in public infrastructure. And I've been involved with it now since 1994, and I'm trying to demystify that. Talking of economics, Doc, where do you think we could address some of the installation costs, the economical impacts, and use this stimulus money better in the industry. I could not agree with you more. The cost of the component is one thing, especially for chargers or the charge plug. That's what it is, really. Charger is built into the vehicle, but the charger plug, which is a contact and a little bit of intelligence. That cost needs to drop, but the cost of installation also needs to drop because there are so many people have installed water heater. I can take anybody from Home Depot, they can do that. But for some reason, they treat this particular piece of equipment three times the cost, four times. There shouldn't be any reason for that. And it is changing. As we get more and more contractors familiar with this, so they are not worried about getting too many calls from their customers for whatever problem they may have, that will reduce. So I think that's all as a function of a scale of economy and shift of the contractor attitude in terms of estimating. However, I also really appreciate 
some of the steps recently that utilities have got involved with this. So now utilities have got involved with this. They can have a master contract and they have a scale of economy to negotiate, to say, if I'm going to install 5,000 chargers, here's how much I'm going to pay per charger. Then you as a consumer and me as a consumer don't have to do that. That is what is going to become a lifesaver. Otherwise, for you and I, even though I know you have a passion for this, and I have a passion for this, we are not ordinary user. Okay? For ordinary user, including my own wife, my own son, even though he drives i3, it is a little bit intimidating. Now, there has been some fire with the garage, okay? Because the electrical system, they just connect this, they don't look at the rest of the house. And that scared people for a while, and we're still paying for that. <laughs> but I think that's behind us. I think with utilities getting involved and a scale of economy with automakers being involved, such that they have a supply agreement or service agreement with the installer, that will reduce the cost substantially. It's just like an early cost of solar versus today's cost of solar. I believe a scale of economy will bring it down. But what matters to us, what worries me the most, is that in most of our established communities, our infrastructure is not strong enough to support me and my neighbor if all of us decide to go EV. That is what I am worried about. Had we adopted electric vehicles back in the day, I mean, there was a choice. We could have gone with electric cars 40, 50, 60 years ago. Had we have adopted electric cars back in the day instead of the internal combustion engine, where do you think we would be right now? I would have loved to see more integration earlier in terms of time. But on the other hand, you cannot push a concept to communities. But right now, you and I truly think that we are adding value beyond our own interest. You see that? Back in 90s, we didn't have that attitude. Well, that's all for this episode of EV Chat, powered by 365 Pronto. Thank you, Doc, for your awesome insight on batteries. And thank you guys for tuning in. We've got some great guests coming up on future episodes, so be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, so you never miss out. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and consider leaving us a rating. It helps us reach more current and future EV enthusiasts. From me, Rue Phillips, I'm signing off, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of EV Chat. Ciao. And I want to thank you, really, and other organizations like yours that dedicate educating the public. This is the only way we can present the value because you are not a seller of EV. You are not a manufacturer of EV yet. When you put the shows like this, you put all of the community plus the supply chain plus the policymaker, you educate them. And I think this is what has happened since 1990. We learn a lot, and thanks to you and other people that put programs like this to educate the public and let the public know that they are doing something good, not only for themselves, but also for the overall neighbors, community, city, and globally.